Hey, friends, real quick here at the top of the show. A <laughs> couple of quick story things that we uh, misspoke on. Um, so when we discuss the Netherfield ball, we should be referencing Meriton ball, uh, which is the one at the beginning. Um, so we got the ball names incorrect. <laughs> the balls we got wrong. We wrong. got the balls wrong. And uh, in the scene where Darcy and Elizabeth are... Um, arguing and he also proposes to her at the same time in the rain he does say he loves her and I couldn't remember if he did um and then after the show filmed I remembered that he does say he loves her right before he roasts her all right back to the show hey film files welcome back to the show we're so excited you're here we're excited to be here Uh, If you've not listened to us before, we're basically a couple of movie nuts in Chicago who like to pick a movie every week that has left some sort of dent in pop culture, uh, good and bad movies. Um, And if you've never listened before, this is a good time to start because today we're doing a movie that's unique and that it's a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but I'm glad that we're doing it. And I'm joined by my voice of reason. Anna, my wife, is with us today. Hello, I'm Anna the Wife. Anna the Wife. All right, so you clicked on the button. You know we're doing Pride and Prejudice. Stay with us. This is Movie Show Theater. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Let's put a smile on that face. Hey, Vasquez, have you ever been mistaken for a man? No. Have you? Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? Maybe. Maybe not. All right, so today we're talking about Pride and Prejudice. Um, This movie has been adapted more than 15 times. The one we're talking about today is from 2005, directed by Joe Wright. First, I'll turn the mic from Oda Anna in a second because it was really her idea that we talk about this movie. But, and, and I have not seen the 1995 version, but it seems like the conversation between Austin fans, it always comes down to who's your Mr. Darcy? Is it Matthew McFadden or is it Colin Firth? And I think that whatever the first version you saw, that's probably going to be your favorite. So before I get into if I liked it or not, I want Anna to kind of explain what keeps her coming back to this movie, why she likes it, why is it important, why does it keep coming up 20 years later? So first I want to say the reason I suggested that we talk about this movie is because it is having sort of a resurgence in pop culture. It's crazy to me to think that 2005 was 17 years ago, and yet I haven't aged a day. I had to rent this movie via Netflix back when they still mailed you DVDs. So that's just, let's just date that, shall we? I was in high school. Watched it then, immediately obsessed, immediately consumed by this movie and have continued to be consumed by this movie once a year for 17 years. Now, that being said, I have seen so many references to this movie on social media and just out in the internet and other worlds for whatever reason. And I think this movie has done a remarkable job of standing the test of time for a number of reasons, and we can dig into that a little bit more. But. The fact that it is now 2022 and this movie came out in 2005 and people are still losing their shit over it on TikTok, on Twitter, on Instagram. I think that that is remarkable because movies that are romantic typically don't have the same 
lasting power or staying power as the other epics that get made. So for a movie like this, which is based, of course, on a classic piece of literature by Jane Austen, I mean, the chokehold that this movie has had on us for almost two decades is amazing. So that's why I wanted to talk about it. I am not an Austenite. I have read Pride and Prejudice. I have read Emma. I've read Sense and Sensibility. Had to read them in college. Loved them. Obviously, I loved them. But I'm definitely not. Like, there are people who, like, that is their fucking thing. And I'm not one of those people. So I'm okay with some liberties taken to stories. Yeah, I guess it's it's so interesting to me because I mentioned I haven't seen the 1995 version. But just going into it, I knew that the Joe Wright version is two hours. The BBC version is almost six hours. So... I'm assuming the general consensus is that the BBC version is a more loyal adaptation. Yes, it's more it's closer to to the book. More specific, it it gets the details of the book more accurate. Yeah, cuz they just they just have the time. And so there is a thing called the Jane Austen Society of North America and the former president of that society, her name is Elsa Solander. She said, after watching your preview of the film before its wide release, she quoted as saying, it has nothing at all of Jane Austen in it, is inconsistent with the first two-thirds of the film, insults the audience with its banality, and ought to be cut before release. So, you know, going into that, uh, again, having not seen the original Jane Austen, I think that what Joe Wright was trying to do, which I appreciate, is like strip down this six-hour story into just the love story. Let's only focus on the love story. And, you know, before Planet Earth, BBC was not known for its um, innovative cinematography. And so this, I think Joe Wright was just trying to bring this movie to a new generation. You know, I had mentioned it's since 1930, this movie has been adapted 16 times, but it really only comes down to these two and so it's like every generation gets, you know, their adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. The most recent one was Pride and Prejudice with zombies, which I didn't see. I don't really care to see. I don't even think you can consider that one an adaptation. It's like a retelling, more or less. Like, That's true. And there are a lot of books and movies that will say that they're a retelling of Pride and Prejudice. They'll take the bones of the structure of the story and the characters and then like do something with it like in modern day i can think of a number of books that have been pitched as like pride and prejudice and the 21st century or whatever so pride and prejudice and zombies doesn't count but i wanted to say that elsa lady's words those were fighting words dang girl yeah so i i did a little bit of digging into like what pissed her off so much one of the big ones that pissed people off was the last scene of the joe wright version ends with them on the terrace at the Pemberley, yes, they're at Pemberley, and it's obviously after the wedding because they make a comment on Mrs. Darcy, Mrs. Darcy, Mrs. Darcy, and so people got really upset, and I want to be careful with my words because I don't want to disrespect someone for their opinion of, of the movie because if they don't like an ending that I liked, that's totally fine. That's part of what makes movies so much fun. And sometimes you get even better quality conversations with people who strongly disagree with your taste in movies. And so in the book and on the BBC version, it ends with this like grand wedding scene. 
And that's, I think that's what people wanted to see. And I think it, when this movie came out in 2005, the people who love the 95 and the Jane Austen were probably looking forward to this scene because I'm sure it would have been beautiful. I'm sure it was great in both previous versions. But just speaking for myself, I don't really need to see that. I mean, I get a sense of this world and I'm sure the 95 version, you know, had an extra four hours to set up what this world looks like, you know, and they did a good job of contrasting the Bennett house from the, what's, what's Darcy's last name? Darcy. He lives at Pemberley. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. So Pemberley estate is very sprawling, but it's very minimalistic and in its decor and it is a little bit cold and... He's just super fucking rich. He's super fucking rich. But then like the Bennett house, you know, they, they obviously don't have nearly as much money, but they're not peasants. They still have staff and, you know, they have a very nice estate. There's these details in the in the Bennett house that are really interesting. Like, you know, the furniture is a little bit worn and, you know, you can tell they don't have the money to restore their furniture and the wallpaper is not on the walls. These like subtle details that just kind of help bring you into this world. The only detail that I, I didn't like, I felt there was there was a scene where a pig runs through, through the kitchen. And I'm like, that's not as subtle. You know, I, I get the idea. I don't need a, a pig rubbed in my face, but I, I get where you're going with this. This also started because we had binge-watched Succession a few months back, and Matthew McFadden plays a very memorable character in Succession called Tom Wamsgams. And so... To see him in this movie is such a telling of his acting chops. I love <laughs> Tom Wamsgam so much. And Mr. Darcy, I've watched this movie so many fucking times that you can't take away Darcy for me. I can keep them separate, but I love Tom Wamsgam so much. So I wanted to comment on the change that Joe Wright made to the final scene and I think, I mean, again, I'm not a purist when it comes to Jane Austen. Um, I'm not a purist when it comes to any adaptations, honestly. There have been, I mean, so many movies are adapted from films and some of them are better than others. It is what it is. I don't get that nitpicky about shit. Otherwise, I've never, I would never stop complaining. So with that being said, I liked this change at the end, this wonderful domestic moment between Darcy and Elizabeth. We so rarely get that in movies like this. You know, usually the penultimate scene is, okay, here's the couples married or they got together and and then like end movie, end scene. So to get this really sweet moment between them where Darcy really gets to let his guard down because he spends his whole movie all buttoned up and, you know, stuffy and rigid and all the things that make him difficult. And then he gets to sit there on his beautiful terrace with his beautiful wife without any shoes on. And like, we get this really nice domestic peek into their lives. And I think that that is very much on theme for the movie itself, which as you were saying, so much of it focuses on the home life of the Bennets. That also draws these distinctions between the way the Bennets live and the way Darcy lives and Mr. Bingley you know, the two very rich male characters versus this more what would be considered like middle class in the period of like Regency and Regency England somewhere in there. And I love that focus on family. It just, you know, everything that was shot in the Bennett house felt so cozy and it really focused on 
how it would feel to live in a house with that many sisters, daughters, people just living and running about. And so the whole thing felt very much like kind of like a weird family hug in a good way. You know, you see their shit scattered all over the tables and they're helping each other get ready for the ball. And, you know, it's also, of course, set in this beautiful, lush English countryside. So you get these, you know, beautiful backdrops and all of that. So I think that Joe Wright made a big focus on the home life aspect of this movie versus, you know, trying to fit this long, you know, cause it is kind of a long story. Um, and that's where the BBC had more Liberty with doing a, you know, six episode limited series, which I have seen for the record, uh, still like the 2005 version better. Thank you very much. And really it's because the vibes, the vibes are right. It feels so fucking romantic. And it feels like family and it feels dramatic. You know, the scene where they confront each other in the rain, like, oh my God, I can quote that scene from memory. And I know I'm not the only one because I've seen about a dozen women do it on TikTok. Like there are a lot of us out there who do this. So in terms of like the change at the end and the liberties that Joe took, I think it works because it did bring a new audience to this movie to this story, to this book. And it continues to, because it, you know, we keep talking about it. Um, and we really haven't had, uh, another adaptation in the last few years. Um, at least not that's anything real. One thing that I do think this story struggles with, if you're not super familiar with, um, the story as a whole, or if you haven't seen it 10 fucking times, it struggles to convey the passage of time because it's only two-ish hours long, which I just want to say thank you for that because I'm tired of bloated-ass movies that are two hours and 48 minutes long when they don't really need to be. So this movie is tight in how it tells its story, but because of that, it, you kind of lose this translation of exactly how much time passes with between, you know, when Darcy and Elizabeth first meet and they have their little confrontation and she mic drops on him in the hall at the, you know, town dance to him walking up to her in the field with his shirt undone. It's confusing to figure out how much time has passed. And so you just kind of have to go along with it. They try to kind of show that through, you know, these sort of artistic scene changes where she like, at one point, Lizzie stands in front of a mirror and uh, the world around her changes around her. And you're like, okay, well, wait, how long was she standing there? And the answer is, we don't really know. And you don't really need to know the exact answer. It was done for the drama. It was done for the vibes. So that it does kind of struggle with that to just like comprehend the linear story that at, that's taking place. But it, I don't think that, you know, for this major shortcoming, it, it's not big enough that like the rest of the movie really suffers because it's also the kind of movie where if you're not okay with thick accents, this is a subtitle movie for a lot of people because what the fuck are they saying half the time? Because they're also speaking in like a different time period. So it's okay that this movie didn't end up being three hours long because it's already kind of difficult to understand. And Kira Knightley is a very fast talker. So I know the first time I watched it, I was like, huh? Like I had to like, I really had to pay attention. And now I can quote the whole damn thing. But if you are new to the movie or if you haven't watched it for a long time and you're like, okay, let me rewatch this. This is a subtitle movie for a lot of people. And there's no shame in that because what the hell are they even saying? So it's okay. It's okay that this movie is shorter and not really bloated, but just, you kind of just have to trust it. It's like, okay, time passes, whatever. What season are we in? Doesn't matter. It's going to rain. It's England. Yeah. 
And if you've never seen the 1995 version, then it really doesn't matter because you have nothing to compare it to. So I didn't really have a problem with that um, until you had mentioned that the first time we talked about it. And then I noticed, uh, yeah, that is kind of true. I did want to mention that um, after that, Jane Austen Society president had all of her sharp comments. The original British version ended with Mr. Bennett giving his blessing which Donald Sutherland, I mean, the casting in this movie was so good. Rosamund Pike was amazing in this movie. That was her big start. Yeah, I wish she would have had more screen time. But Donald Sutherland and Mrs. Bennett, who is played by Brenda Breslin or something like that. She's a she's in fucking everything. Yeah. In, like English productions, yes. She's she's so theatrical. And, you know, she does kind of serve as the the comic relief because Jesus Christ, her nerves cannot take much more. She needs some. She needs some St. John's wort or something. But you like you understood the pressures of parents in this situation, especially with five daughters. Joe Wright set this movie in 1797, and most adaptations are set in 1813. So that's like right on the cusp of two different time periods of uh, Regency. I just want to say I consider myself somewhat of an expert in Regency romances because I have read so many Regency historical romance novels. And Mrs. Bennet, even though she's a little shrill and annoying, that's par for the course for that time. Like, her job was to get her daughters married off because if you were a woman and you were unwed, like their wonderful friend who was 27 and a burden to her parents, God bless her, even though they say she's ugly in so many words. Uh, Which she's not. No, she's just... Like that, that was life. And it's a shitty thing that's true. And I'm like, I'm quoting myself like I'm some sort of expert. Oh yes, I just read a bunch of historical romances. <laughs> but from my understanding, like those were literally your only options. So I get Mama Bennett's stress that like, I have five daughters that all need husbands. That is my sole function right now. So I get it, because that seems really stressful. I'm trying to find the name of that girl. Oh my God, what is her name? Her scene with Kira Knightley was so good. I, I can quote the scene. Well, oh, anyway. Oh, burden to my parents. Yeah, so there's there's all this pressure and like, yeah, no mother wants their daughter be, to be a spinster, but like, I literally can't pay for your Charlotte shit. Charlotte Lucas. Charlotte Lucas. So there's a scene where Charlotte approaches Elizabeth and lets her know that she did end up marrying Tom Hollander, Mr. Collins? Yes, Mr. Collins. Yes, Mr. Collins. She accepted so, his proposal. And um, Elizabeth rightly shot him down. I mean, I want to say kind of rudely, but I wouldn't want to be married to him either. So there's this school of thought that's like Pride and Prejudice, obviously, you know, Elizabeth is very prideful and Mr. Darcy has a lot of prejudice. And so, you know, Elizabeth was not willing to compromise love and who she wanted to be with. And Mr. Collins, who was... He was also her cousin. Well, that's Yuck. true. Well, it's 1797. I mean, there was still like people... I know that people did it, but it was also like you had a right to be like, no thanks. Yeah. But well, she was criticized by her mom for not accepting his proposal. And so you could look at it like, well, you know, I applaud your integrity, but also, you're 
kind of putting your family at risk of losing a lot of money. Destitution, yeah. Right. So, and, and, and so I supported her in that from afar, but I was really glad that Papa Bennett also supported her decision because that kind of helped you be sympathetic for her saying no. Because of course, like in 2022, like that would be awful. If this guy approached you at a bar, he'd be like, fuck out of here. They also did a good job of making Mr. Collins really insufferable. Oh my God. So like laughably so. Like laughably, like he's such a fucking clout chaser and he keeps referring to his esteemed, oh God, what's her, um, Lady Catherine and how much like Lady Catherine would accept her. And he's, oh God, he's this like stuttering imbecile mess who is clear, like he's just absolutely no match for Lizzie. Like she's such a headstrong person. No, absolutely not. And it sucks that Charlotte of course has to settle, but you know, as she tells Lizzie in that great scene, she's like, bitch, I got to do what I got to do. And she's happy enough when Lizzie goes to see them, you know, she gets to run her own household and has to put up with Mr. Collins. Yeah. But like she's free and she's got some agency and independence and she doesn't have to be a spinster. So yeah, she kind of got a happy ending. Yeah, her the way that she handled that was very modern and that like that's probably what would have happened if that movie was if that story was told today and I mean we wouldn't be in that situation so that's hard to compare but yeah so it takes place in 1797 which is the year that Jane Austen wrote her first draft of this story which was interesting because almost all the other adaptations take place specifically in the year 1813 hmm. so um the Netherfield Ball is like the standout scene in my mind. Right at the end of Act One, when Elizabeth and Darcy finally meet and make eye contact, and you get all these sort of like subtle nuances for for the Bennets and for the Darcys. And uh, is Darcy's brother's name Bingley? Yes, Bingley is his good friend, Mr. Good Bingley. Friend. Yeah, and his sister is Caroline Bingley. Yeah. The redhead, the snobby redhead. Yeah. She was a great character. She was. And I, I really enjoyed it. Netherfield Ball. Lizzie has such a great clapback because he, she hears him talking shit about her. Yes. And she... Explain that if you if you can. Oh, it's so great. So I just... I love... So at one point at this ball, Lizzie and Charlotte, uh, the spinster friend who marries Mr. Collins, are like tucked away under some seating and they're just kind of gossiping. Uh, and Mr. Darcy walks by and he says something to Mr. Bingley that he finds Elizabeth barely tolerable. And uh, Charlotte looks at her and she says something like, oh, be grateful, Lizzie. If he liked you, you'd have to talk to him. And they like giggle like little, it's funny. Uh, but then later, Lizzie is talking to Darcy in a group and Darcy says something. They're having a little conversation in this group. And he asks her, well, if poetry isn't the food of love, then what is? And she says, dancing, even if one's partner is barely tolerable. <laughs> and then she gives her little nod and she walks away. And it is such a proud moment. It's such a wonderful Regency clapback. And you're like, oh shit, girl, mic drop. Good job. <laughs> and Darcy just like looks at her and you're like, yes, great, excellent. We love a yeah. girl who stands up for herself. So that's just a great fucking scene. And then they have those little moments in their, their little like angry banter moments with each other um, where they challenge each other and they challenge each other's, you know, preconceived notions about each other and just like, and in some cases like gender as a whole. And again, this is, you know, where subtitles come in handy because sometimes some of the things that pass between them, it took me a couple watches where I, then finally I was like, oh, I get it. 
But yeah, and in terms of favorite scenes, there's two scenes that I really want to talk about. And I want to talk about them because they're so fucking romantic, I could die. And one of these scenes is the scene that continues to make its rounds on social media and continues to be a part of the like sort of pop culture zeitgeist of romance moments in movies. Uh, That is the hand flex scene in which Lizzie has spent some time with Mr. Darcy. Um, She went to visit her sister who had gotten sick on a trip over to visit Mr. Bingley. We got a lot of marriage shaming going on here. Anyway, long story short, Darcy is walking alongside Lizzie and they've spoken a number of times. They've been around each other, but he lifts his hand up to help her get into the carriage and they touch for the first time. And it's bare fingers too, because this was also like when people wore gloves and shit. Uh, So their bare hands touch and Lizzie gets kind of a weird look on her face and looks back at him because she did not expect him to do that. And Darcy walks away and his hand flexes and the camera focuses on his hand flexing. And I swear to God, like my back arched when I watched that scene for the first time. I was like, oh my God, this is the most PG thing I've ever seen. But this is so, that is the most tension riddled, holy shit I've ever, wow. And it's so funny because like, I thought, you know, this was when we watched movies in 2005, we didn't have the same conversation starters like Twitter or whatever, where you could just like jump on and give your thoughts. I mean, I guess we kind of had MySpace, but it wasn't the same tool. And now I see people talking about this same scene 17 years later. I mean, at this point, pretty much people who want to see a lot of people have seen this movie, but that scene really resonated with us. And it's, I just think it's so great that, you know, I am totally down with some explicit content in my films, media, television, music, books, whatever. But to have built tension in this kind of strange way where it's, you know, you realize you have an aha moment as a viewer. They're like, oh, shit, they haven't touched yet. And Darcy's hand flexes and it's like, oh, it's on. And that, I just, it's a great little moment in filmmaking. It just feels like so... It's like, it's not hot, but it's hot. And I, I just, I love that. Yeah, I, I think it's hot. It's not explicit, but like when the Bridgertons blew up two summers ago, it, this household was no different. We we really enjoyed it. And I figured it would probably have good cinematography. I figured it would be beautiful to watch. I figured, you know, it would have the Netflix money. It would have good, you know, music and all that. But I really got wrapped up into the story and, you know, the scene of Darcy flexing his hand, I've heard legends of this scene. I've heard of this scene for like five years. And so I didn't know that it was coming. And then it happened. And I like totally stand by everything Anna just said. And it's amazing that the hand flex can be as hot as Jean Rene going down on, on what's her name. I mean, yeah. it was the same level of like chills. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Bridgerton because I think that also has has a reason why we've seen a resurgence of this movie of Pride and Prejudice back in the you know pop, pop culture sphere because um, Bridgerton I mean Bridgerton is notably sexier like in the literal sense than Pride and Prejudice but it's Regency England and it's fucking great and it was if not the most watched show one of the top two for Netflix in 2020. So there's clearly a big audience of people who like to consume this kind of stuff. Granted, there was a lot of the world that was inside watching things in 2020, but I do think that there's probably some bridge, there's a segue of people who watched Bridgerton and were like, what else do you have? 
and Pride and Prejudice is available on different streaming platforms. It used to be on Netflix. It was for the longest time, and I don't know where it went. I own this as streaming. I also own it on DVD, which I'm pretty sure I bought in a $5 bin at a Walmart somewhere like 10 years ago. So yeah, Bridgerton is a good mention because there's still an interest in this like Regency romance and we get Bridgerton season two later this month, which I'm very excited about because I've read these books. As I said, I love historicals. So yeah, it's uh, that's probably why, another reason why this movie continues to be in the lexicon. Yeah, I think that Bridgerton had like, this won't turn two into Bridgerton, but it had this almost element of like fantasies to it where like there's not orcs and, and fairies and, and aliens, but it was whimsical. It was so whimsical, you know, Oh, it was so beautiful. It and was, whimsical. it was so much fun. And when we watched this, we were still, I was still kind of on a high from that. And you know, it's not the same vibe obviously, but it's not, they're not really going for that. I would call it comparable vibes because it's not exactly the same. I mean, even the color palettes are different. The per- their personalities are, are different. Yeah, well, I mean, the Duke from that book and that season of Bridgerton is similar to Mr. Darcy. I mean, his backstory is a little bit more involved. He's got, his confidence is a little different. There are comparable daddy issues um, <laughs> with both men, but we love that. That's common in Regency heroes. We got a lot of buttoned-up daddy issues that happen, and we love to see it because they turn into, they have a great, satisfying emotional arc when they finally find love. But yeah, so Bridgerton and Pride and Prejudice have different vibes, but I think I think the Venn diagram of people who love Bridgerton and love Pride and Prejudice are two circles that are overlap so much, they're almost a single circle. And I think the feeling of Bridgerton is very similar to Pride and Prejudice, especially when you factor in all the wonderful things like the music. The music for both the show and the movie are just truly, chef's kiss and i could talk about that shit forever um, from pride of prejudice from both yeah i love both soundtracks so 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 much and even like just you know bridgerton is is more whimsical yes oh my god so much wisteria it's not even funny yeah and and intentional too and also i love colin firth he has been in so many iconic roles if i watch the bbc version i don't know if he would if he would be able to be my mr darcy whether it's jamie from love actually or king george the sixth from King's speech or whatever his name is from bridget jones's diary um he just has so many iconic characters and this character of darcy is such a an interesting internal power dynamic where he is so socially awkward and all all forms of awkward he's not really sure what he wants he's not really sure what he's going for he has all this power and prestige and respect behind him and it doesn't really have a specific direction he's he's not really sure and i feel like matthew mcfadden just embodied it so well and and maybe because i'm partial as him uh for him as tom's wom's games but he wasn't really malicious in any way he was just like you know, there were a couple of scenes where you really see the true heart of Darcy, like when Elizabeth finds out that he paid for um, Rosamund Pike's wedding. No, he paid for Lydia's wedding. Lydia's wedding. He was a champion through all of that. I mean, Mr. Darcy had his moments of absolute arrogance when he separated Bingley and her wonderful sister Jane because he thought Jane was indifferent when Jane was just shy. And, you know, we get to that confrontation with Lizzie and Darcy and he realizes how wrong he is and he sets out to make it all right. And part of that is when he patches up 
Lydia's disastrous elopement. I think McFadden's portrayal of him is so great because he is, he has these moments of such great tenderness because Darcy doesn't have a lot of speaking lines compared to the other characters in the movie, you know, especially Lizzie, she's the talker. And he, you know, he's the other main character, so of course he speaks, but he's not a great talker. And that's part of his character, which leads me to, he has some wonderful interactions when him and Lizzie are kind of on the up and up after they've fought with each other. They had their scene in the rain, which I could talk about that scene forever. But Lizzie goes to Pemberley with her aunt and uncle. They, they're traveling together and they, they end up at Pemberley and Darcy happens to be there. And she sees his little sister playing piano, Georgiana. And uh, now she knows the truth about what happened to Georgiana and uh, Mr. Wickham. And so she's, she's got some backstory there. And Georgiana is kind of a little ray of sunshine. And at one point, Darcy, Georgiana, and Lizzie are all standing in this room where the piano is. And there's also, I want to make a little note. I want to shout out to the person on Twitter who noticed this. The horny Regency couch it's the room where the horny Regency couch is. <laughs> it's the Pride and Prejudice couch. It's also in Bridgerton season two. And I think it's also, I want to say, in one of the adaptations of Emma. But anyway, I just thought it was funny. Somebody called it the horny Regency couch. And I was like, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's the this, same couch. It's this big, long couch. And there's got this big, beautiful fresco on the wall behind it. If you see it in Bridgerton, you'll, noti- you'll notice. Um, anyway, Lizzie and Georgiana are talking to each other. And Matthew McFadden has this most wonderful series of facial expressions that he does when 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 they're talking he his sister and this girl who's like falling in love with this most wonderful sunniest smile comes across his face and it you never get to you hardly ever get to see him smile and then when he does that and he's not like the main focus of the shot it's lizzie and georgiana communicating but he gets he just like he's just so happy and he like forgets his mask and every time i see that i'm like oh my god that's it. Yeah, you get so desensitized to his like resting grump face. Maybe uh, grumpy sunshine. Yeah, it's a grumpy sunshine trope. Yeah, more or less. More or less. So the scene of the Netherfield ball, the first time that they get to interact, and there's a scene where they're where they actually get to dance, and they're doing like a very of the times traditional kind of like sterile dance and you're like okay this is great finally and like they do this lighting cue with the cinematography where the lighting kind of goes dark enough to where you notice it and then it comes back on just a little bit It, it comes back on only enough to see that it's only them in the room and i mean that's obviously done you know to like to heighten the emotional senses of the scene and i mean that one isn't as subtle because you definitely notice it but there's a lot of other little like subtle cues with like camera movement and camera heights that just help to kind of like sell the story. And the one of the last scenes that I really like, well, first of all, the scene under the, the gazebo in the rain yes. is a classic scene. And I mean, I really like the scene and I think they both did very well. I mean, with their execution of that scene and, like gets everybody all hot and they get close and you're like, are you guys going to kiss? But I think this was one of my like critiques the first when we were talking about this. And I think it's because of your comment on the passage of time because he's proposing, but you don't know how much time has passed since their last interaction. And their last interaction 
would not suggest that he was that they that like it would be logical for him to propose to her. So when I watched this, I felt like it was a, like that scene was like they put it in the wrong order. Like it's a great scene, but it should be like a little bit further down the road once they've had some a little more like casual camaraderie. And I think that that's just chalked up to they only had two hours to tell this 500 page story. Yeah, but it's an amazing scene. I disagree that it happened too early. It's kind of like the 50% mark in the movie, which is typically in a storytelling format, at least with the A-plot, which in this movie, the romance is the A-plot. That's about par for the course for, you know, this, we have our heroine, Lizzie, is faced with a big choice. It's a moment, the midpoint. So I know, you know, I think in the context of what we know as courtship, it feels rushed as hell because like, I mean, if they've known each other a month, that seems super fast to me in 2022. But that's how it went. Like, you got proposed to. Somebody liked you enough to propose, and love came later if you were lucky. And he never says he loves her in that scene, which is important because he says it at the end of the movie. That scene is so rife with tension from not only, like, a sexual tension, because there's that, like, moment where you just want to scream for them to kiss, even though they don't... (laughs) Lizzie's told him all the reasons why she hates him. But they're angry with each other, too. And Kira Knightley delivers a very sharp-tongued monologue in very rapid-fire succession, and it she does a great job with it. I can still quote that in my head verbatim as she tells him no, and they confront each other about what they've done, you know, because Darcy did separate Jane and Bingley, and she's, of course, she's pissed, and he's like, well, your family is kind of trashy sometimes. And she's like, well, if you're gonna, why would you tell me all the reasons that you don't like me and then propose to me? It's very funny. But in the scene where they're like about to almost kiss each other, Matthew McFadden does something so amazing with his voice where he says, forgive me, madam, for taking up so much of your time. But he does something with his voice where the last word time dips a little bit. And it just like, I was like, damn, good job. Because <laughs> like, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm like, I can fix him. <laughs> you know, like I would do it. But that scene is so great and it's so and it's so dramatic. Like it's raining. There's yeah. a gazebo of marble. Yeah. She's pissed. He's angsty. There's like so right much at twilight. Fuck yes, it's so fucking dramatic. And you and the music builds and everybody's emotions are running high and it's like you could not layer it on thicker. Yeah. But it all works. Like it feels so lush and and just rife with feeling and I ate that shit up. I do it every year. It's great. Yeah, and and it's and it should be dramatic too because the context of what's being discussed. He's like, like you said, he didn't say I love you, but he is opening himself up and like allowing himself to be vulnerable for the first time. And she's kind of like cutting him a little bit while you know while he's doing this. But you know, while at the same time, at this point, you know that you know both characters do have very strong feelings for each other. I mean, you know that going into the movie. I mean, you probably have an idea of like, this is a love story and you assume that there's probably a happily ever after. And there is. And that happily ever after scene. So like, (laughs) so there's the scene where Judy Dench. Lady Catherine. Lady Catherine. Lady Catherine de Bourbe. She, who I guess Joe Wright wrote her a letter and said that nobody can be a bitch better than her or something like that. Nobody plays a bitch like her. 
And she just took it as a huge compliment. And it's so true. And I haven't done enough reading. I mean, I haven't ever read anything that takes place in the Regency period. So I can't talk to this accuracy, but just watching the movie, by the time that we get to the end, when Lady Catherine comes into the Bennett house in the middle of the night to tell her to stay away from Darcy, I just felt like was wildly inappropriate. And not to critique the writing, because I don't think that it's the fault of the writer. I don't think that should have been in there, because it's supposed to be wildly inappropriate. And then the very next morning, I mean, the the atmospheric layers that exist when she's walking along this fence with the mist and the dew and the sun coming up and the sound of the birds. I mean, it is just like so immersive. I mean, you can almost smell that dew. And then you see him walking up and Darcy undone. I love it so much. Darcy undone. Yeah. So like you see him walking from like half a mile and you know what's coming. I mean, you know, what's going to happen. You know, you've been watching this movie for like an hour and 45 minutes and you're like, holy shit, this is it. Fucking finally. And they like really draw out the anticipation of him walking up. Can we talk about that dialogue too? They, they draw up that anticipation, the music builds. And I said, Darcy undone. Because he's all disheveled. His shirt's undone. He doesn't have a cravat on. His cloak, his cloak is flowing behind him. And it's you're just like, you just want to scream because you're like, this is the man at the end of his rope. Like, Lizzie's just been through it. Like, here is the moment. But the dialogue in that scene between the two of them is the most romantic shit I have ever heard in my life. When he tells her, you have bewitched me, body and soul. If your affections and feelings, something about from last April have not changed, you know, let me let me know and I'll leave you alone forever. But you have bewitched me body and soul. And I love, love, love you. And it's like you can't get the word out right to tell her how much she loves her. And I'm, you're just like, oh, my God. Oh, my. Oh, my God. Wow. But his delivery is key there because he is so tender. It's like another one of those examples of Matthew McFadden. He does these little tender things with his face, with his voice, these subtle little changes that give you a clue that like of who the man that Darcy really is, you know, whether it's some strange inflection that he does or something that just gives you a clue that like, <sighs> there's so much feeling bottled up in that man. Yeah. And he shows up all... Darcy undone. <laughs> he tells her, you have bewitched me body and soul. I have never, in all the hundreds of books that I have read, have never read anything as romantic as that line. But that's it. It's the fucking best. It's so good. And it's so satisfying. Except they don't kiss. They don't kiss in that scene. Yeah. They get real close. Their mouths get right there. But Joe saves that for the very last scene of the movie. That's what we get. Yeah, that's storytelling. I think it's in the last fucking scene. I mean, the scene, the scene is so encapsulating emotionally. I mean, I didn't notice that they didn't kiss, actually, until you just said that. So I obviously don't feel like I'm, I'm missing anything. But I remember watching this movie with someone. They, it was their time, first time watching it. And we got to the scene, the morning scene. I just I have this wonderful core memory of them yelling, holy fucking shit. Just kiss. And he's like, not yet. We got like 10 more minutes before that happens. Yeah. And it's true. It's this so, there's this push-pull tension. Yeah. Um, yeah, it makes you want to rip your own skin off because you want it so bad. And um, like, I came to understand that Darcy is frustrated by his own 
awkwardness. And so sometimes it's like he wants to say something, but he knows he might not get it out, so he just won't say anything. But towards the end, he he gives this incredible speech to her, and he has trouble with these words, but he like he sees it all the way through. He's like, this is worth fighting for. I need to get this out. The only thing that could have been better maybe is if sh- her her response is something like, are you cold or something like that? She doesn't respond. Your hands are cold. Your hands are cold, yeah. In one regard, it doesn't really matter what she says because you know they're about to end up together. But I do think that's a really funny response for like the most beautiful soliloquy I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> I get why they wrote it that way. They want to continue to draw it out a little bit longer because she does technically have to, he has to appeal to her father to let her marry him. And so you, and then you get this really tender moment between Lizzie and her father, which I thought was really sweet. Because again, Donald Sutherland is great. The whole supporting cast is so great in this movie. Yeah, I wish that Lizzie had said something other than your hands are cold. But, you know, she's kind of a headstrong bitch at times. So it is, you know, and that's, but that's part of her character. Like, mm-hmm. she, what did she say? Poetry is the death of love. So <laughs> at the beginning of the movie, we know that Lizzie is not huge on these poetic declarations of love. Yeah, but, but that's part of why he loves her, right? Yeah, yeah. So Carrie Mulligan does great. This is little Carrie Mulligan, little Jenna Malone. Their two characters are like so goofy. Oh, they're like little fairies that are just like running around. Flirt. What is uh, the silliest flirt determined to make herself ridiculous or something? Yeah, is yeah. What Lizzie calls her. Yeah, which is so true. They're, yeah. They're like little 15-year-old sisters that just all they can think about is boys. Yeah, and I really liked... Uh... Mary did a really good job. Yeah, poor Mary. That was an actress Socially that I... Socially awkward Mary. I know. That was an actress that I had never seen before, and I looked her up. Yeah. Her name was Tallulah Riley. Oh, yeah. She's been in she's, quite a few, quite a few yeah, things Yeah, she's now. been in a bunch of stuff. But um, the music was done. This Italian composer named Darian Marinelli, who's done a couple of Joe Wright films. And I'm sure that you've seen other Joe Wright films. He's done movies like uh, Atonement and uh, Anna Karenina, also with Keira Knightley. He did that movie Pan that flopped most recently. But yeah, all of his movies kind of have have similar feelings. The movie did very well in the box office. Budget of $28 million. Oh, did it? I actually don't even know how it's box office. Well, but... you know how I feel about box office numbers. Yeah, this is his, his hyperfixation. $28 million budget. Their uh, box office domestic take was just uh, was $121 million, And that's just domestic. I mean... Who knows what the China market was like? I don't know how Joe Wright does in China, but... The China market. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to check my records. I'll get back to you on that one. Uh, Did you look up something else Tallulah was in? uh, No, I was just looking. I was looking at Joe Joe Wright's filmography, but I just thought of something um, that further evidenced my point that uh, for some reason this movie has really stuck in the cultural lexicon. And this is very specific to me, but there is a... Well, to me and millions of others, because there's a lot of people that subscribe to this YouTube channel called Ambient Worlds. And there's this guy who's got a Patreon. He's, uh does these Ambient World YouTube videos based on, it's like a few hours of essentially like music from scores. If like you don't, looped visuals. Yeah, looped visuals. It's very atmospheric. It's I love these for reading. It's amazing. You know, he's done a bunch. He's done a few for Game of Thrones. There's like probably 10 for Harry Potter. There's a bunch for Lord of the Rings. Which, you know, those make sense. Like, I think there's, I know there's like a Skyrim one. Like, so he, he does a few and he takes requests, I think, 
But he's got, there's a lot of people that subscribe to this channel and we donate to his Patreon every month because I'm like, hell yeah, these are great. But just a few months ago, he did a Pride and Prejudice ambient world. What? Yeah. We haven't watched it? Oh, I have. I haven't? Bitch, I have read to that several times. Oh my gosh. Largely that's because the music is so good. Dario Marianelli. Although I think, I think he had an apprentice or somebody who co-wrote this score with him because I'm pretty sure... The name that was printed on the book of piano music that I had for this. So so there's that. There's that, because I played the piano. And it was actually, some of it wasn't that hard. I was I was never a very good player, but I was good enough that I could I could play some of these pieces. I think there were two people who actually technically wrote the score, but I think Dario Marianelli is the one who gets most of the credit. Anyway, it's a great, great score. Dario Marianelli just continues to get better the longer that he works. So I'm really glad that... Joe and Dario Marinelli work together so much because they they do. They continue to, they work together on Atonement, uh, which is a great movie. It's a frustrating movie in some ways, in the ways that it should be. It is, it's a great movie. The soundtrack is remarkable. Uh, Anna Karenina is a risky movie. Not for everybody. Not my favorite movie. I was impressed with what they tried to do, um, but the music is beautiful. And it's, you know... It's a it's one Russian of those, fantasy kind of. I mean, it's Leo Tolstoy's novel, and it also there's oh my God, we could talk about Leo Tolstoy and the different the uh, translations and how much they differ forever. But point is, Anna Karenina is a, uh, was an artistic made a lot of interesting artistic choices, but the music is really beautiful because Dario and Joe work really well together. Yeah, you can you can usually tell when you're watching a Joe Wright movie that's got all of these very immersive components that all work together. He does a lot of uh, single take shots that aren't necessarily consciously appreciated, but they just serve the story. Pride and Prejudice opens with one. Yeah, Pride and Prejudice. And then I'm thinking of that really famous one from Dunkirk. Atonement yes, the elegy that for we've Dunkirk. watched a thousand times, James McAvoy. And uh, that is like a seven minute shot that's done like on the beaches of this battlefield and the camera basically rotates 360 degrees and there's animals, there's moving parts, there's like a busted up carousel, there's bloody pieces of men lying everywhere. It's the most beautiful scene. And then somebody tells you, you know, that was all done in one shot. You know, that one seven minute scene that you just watched took four weeks to block and set and film and you're like oh shit let me go watch that again and then you watch it again and you're like oh my god this is amazing yeah and it's also that scene is set to a really beautiful piece of music elegy for dunkirk yeah um back to those tracking shots i love that pride and prejudice we probably should have talked about this at the beginning but it opens with a the establishing shot is this like one long at least it feels like one long shot that weaves through the house and the camera does that a lot especially in the bennett's home I think it's just such a clever way to show you how this family operates. You know, you get in the beginning, the very opening shot, you get a glimpse of the two young ones, I think like giggling and chasing each other around. And then you see Mary at the piano and Mary's kind of the socially awkward one. She's shy and reserved, but she's, and she loves to play the piano. So you, and then you see Lizzie and Jane doing their thing and, and the servants are working and it. So you get this, it's such a clever way to tell us, here is your cast and here's who they are, you know, mm -hmm. like just in one, four, five minute long, at least it feels like one continuous shot. 
And that's so, so clever. And it does that several times. Um, I know after the second more formal ball, we get glimpses into each sister's room, you know, what are they doing? And, or, and at one point you even get a glimpse into the parents' room, you know, mama and daddy Bennett laying in bed talking about their daughters. Um, and then you, you know, you get to see Lizzie and Jane laying in bed talking about their night and stuff like that. And, and the camera is kind of always moving like one big fluid movement. And it's, I think it's really clever way to kind of like recap the night. And it again, keeps that sort of lush flowing feel that the movie has about it. Mm-hmm. So, and I noticed that 17 watches later. <laughs> Yeah, there's the 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 little subtleties that remind you that you're watching this from her perspective, you know, because the book is written from her perspective. But you watch it, you know, if you if you, if a movie was a direct adaptation, like literally page on the screen, it would be very boring, and you know things have to change. But they remind you that you're that she's kind of the one telling the story, and there's the scene where she's on the swing. And she spins on the swing and ties the string all up and then let, lifts her feet up and the swing writes itself and the camera is from her perspective, from her point of view. And you see the house move, move by as her, as the swing is swinging. And it's, it's just, it's a really nice touch. So I guess, uh, in, in conclusion, for me, I don't feel like I need to, uh, see the 1995 version. I wouldn't be opposed to it, but I feel like. You know, this movie, anything that didn't have to do with the love story was stripped out. And I think that's probably why these naysayers have such problem with the 2005 version is because they don't, are they're not necessarily critiquing the story. They're critiquing this like world that they don't get to see uh, as much of. But you just shouldn't compare a TV show to a movie. You just shouldn't do that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I like the BBC version. Um, I've seen it once. I probably won't watch it again. I mean, maybe. But Pride and Prejudice has become one of my comfort movies. Let's see why. It's the movie I watch after I've had a long, shitty day. It's also very non-threatening. So it's a great napping movie where you start it with the intention. Similar wavelengths. Yes, with the intention that you're going to fall asleep. There's nothing scary. There's nothing super loud. You can just drift off into a placid, comfortable nap with this movie. And I have done it so many times, it's not even funny. Because again, back in the day, you had to have a DVD to put into a DVD player if you wanted to nap to a movie. So this is a great napping movie because Lord of the Rings is harder to nap to because shit gets loud. I think this is just such a, a wonderful look at a story that so many people are familiar with. It's a great adaptation. Again, it's all about the vibes. This movie is just full of vibes and feelings. (laughs) And it's not perfect. It has its shortcomings. But it's a movie with two good-looking people falling in love. It's got some quick-moving, witty dialogue, some banter that's really nice. And it has some of the most iconic romantic tension moments in modern film. And, you know, the fact that it continues to be talked about it continues to be referenced it's finding new audiences i think that's amazing because this is not this isn't one of the epics this isn't one of those movies that was like super heavily promoted literally the reason that i rented this aside from the fact that i just like these types of movies kira knightley did this fresh off of pirates of the caribbean Mm. or like right after she play elizabeth in that movie too yes she did a lot of elizabeths running around Mm -hmm. but i liked her in that and i just like sort of made the connection because it was a different world in 2005, you know? You had to be marketed to in a very specific way. Anyway, 
Uh, this movie will always be in my arsenal of favorites. It's somewhere, hovers somewhere in my top five. Gets bumped around a little bit depending on the mood. But uh, yeah, it's got some some really wonderful elements to it. And now that we've got Tom Wamsgams, it's like a whole new viewing experience to yeah. watch Matthew McFadden because I know now I can really see his range. Yeah. That he was a great actor then. So yeah, thanks for talking about this with me. Yeah, it really made me respect Joe Wright for his bold choices in storytelling because he had to have known that this was going to get a lot of pushback. You know, he thought the story was so important and so timeless, the core, you know, love story between these two that he wanted to give it the Joe Wright treatment to bring this movie to a new generation that hadn't seen the 1995 version like me. I, I probably will not watch it. Had we not watched the 2005 version, I also probably would not have watched the 1995 version. We're due for a new one. We're due for someone else to take a stab at this. Good luck. Who would be, oh, on the spot question, who would you cast as Darcy and Elizabeth in the 2022 mm. era? Uh, it would be directed by Guy Ritchie. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Darcy will be played by Seth Rogen. Yuck. Um, I would left. say, Wow. I mean... A brooding Mr. Darcy. Oh. Ooh, Tom Holland. He's hot right now. He's such a golden retriever in a I trench know, coat. I know. He's not a Mr. Darcy. He is a golden retriever. Yeah, he doesn't have that He's too young, effect. too, because Darcy yeah, was yeah, probably yeah. in his 30s. He could be a Bingham. He could be a Bingham. He'd be a good Bingham. He would be a sweet Bingham. Now, how about Elizabeth? I'm trying to think of both. And I, for some reason, I, I'm like, I, my brain is like, well, you must pick a British person. And no, bitch, you no. don't have to pick a British person. You know who might make a good Elizabeth? Elizabeth Moss. No, she's too old. Yeah, she's too old. Lizzie's got to be like 22-ish. I think in the mm. book, she's probably about 18, which is considered kind of old for a bride. In Regency England, your ass as a young girl entered into the season, if you were rich, to catch a husband at like... 16. So Lizzie was probably about 19, 18, yeah. 19. And Jane was probably about 19, 20, if not. Yeah. So they're probably about 18, 19, 20, the two of them. You know who would be a great Mr. Bennett? Who? Uh, David Straythorn. No. <laughs> yeah, he would. No. he's From too, Nightmare Alley? He's too old. Donald Sutherland has been 85 for 20 years. Wait. Nightmare Alley guy, you wanted to be Mr. Darcy? No, I want him to be Mr. Bennett. Oh, Papa Bennett. that's fine. Oh. <laughs> I thought you wanted him to be Mr. Darcy. And I'm like, hold on, this is not a daddy kink, Pride and Prejudice. No, but it could be. Hold on, I have I have an option, but I need to look up their name because I don't remember their name for Darcy. And you're going to love this. You're going to agree Director. with this. Hamish Linklater. Yes! Here's my nomination for Darcy. That's it. He would make an excellent oh Mr. Darcy. Oh my God, he would. Thank you. Wow. My wife has just pointed out Hamish Linklater, who played the father in... Um, the priest, specifically. The priest, specifically, in Midnight Mass. Wow. That just totally blew my mind. <laughs> That's the best thing I've ever heard in my life. Give me a Hollywood table and I'll pitch it. Who would be my Elizabeth? Oh, that's such a tough role to cast because I love Lizzie so much. And I feel like, okay, I really hope this makes it into the final cut because I feel like I spent a lot of time gushing over Darcy, which I do. But I also really love Lizzie because she is not a pick-me girl. She is devoted to her sisters. She's devoted to her family. 
she is a girl's girl in that way, but she's also really brainy. And so she's, and she's funny and she's kind of witty. So she has, she's a complex character and I love that about her. So that makes her very difficult to cast. And I remember reading an interview with Joe Wright years ago where he talked about how hard it was to find the right Lizzie Bennett because they needed somebody youthful and they needed somebody who could be all those things because that's who Elizabeth Bennett was. So it's very hard to think of who could be her, especially one who hasn't already fucking been her or been in a role like that. And I'm also just not privy to a lot of like really young actresses. Zendaya. I was just gonna say, <laughs> is there anybody other than Zendaya right now? Is there anybody it else be acting? Sarah Sidney. Sydney Sweeney. Yeah, Sydney Sweeney. Or how about the actress that plays Maddie? She'd be a good Elizabeth. Oh, Alexi, <laughs> Alexi Demi, I think is her name. Yeah. Bitch, you better be joking. <laughs> no, she'd be an intimidating Lizzie. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God, who could be Lizzie? I mean, I really like Micah Monroe, but. That's just my own. My who own is that? That's I know. I know. I know who that is. No. I'm getting a lot of eye rolls from my direction. No. I mean, Zendaya is a good choice. Zendaya is the choice, and she will also sing the title from the score. <laughs> no. Oh god, there's gotta be. Okay, I like Zendaya. I like that a lot. Judy Dench will reprise her role. Yeah. Or we could, you could bring in Helen happen. Mirren. No, I don't, I don't buy her as a bitch. She also, I don't buy her as a Mrs. Bennett either. I mean, Zendaya has my vote. I don't know a lot of like 20-something actresses anymore. I just, I mean, I and I still... Outside of Euphoria. Yeah. I'm like, who in the Euphoria cast could be Lizzie Bennett? <laughs> I mean, Maude Apatow's cute. Anyway, this was a fun fan cast for the yeah. 2023 version of... Pride and Prejudice. Yes. Hamish Linklater. He's my new Mr. Darcy. Yeah. Visit our Facebook for uh, updates on our uh, 2023 Pride and Prejudice recast. <laughs> yeah. I need to stew on, on Lizzie a little bit more. Because Zendaya is great, but she's so busy, she, we would never get her. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to hear the rest of our podcast, you can go to soundcloud.com slash movieshowtheater. You can go to iTunes podcasts, or you can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. You can find our Movie Show Theater Facebook page, send us a message, give us a a movie suggestion, something you'd like to do. We'll never run out of movies, but we want to talk about what you would like us to talk about. So, my wife, constant reader, often writer, Anna, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me and for doing this movie, because I bullied you into this. Well, I can't wait to see what you bully me into next time. Great. Uh, So, until next time, I'm Jimmy. I'm Anna. And this is Movie Show Theater. Stay movies, everyone.